Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, so today is November the 13th. Um, we've got a pretty good show for you today, I think. Um, we're going to talk about all kinds of different things. But before that, uh, how about the rundown? Yes. So it is the beginning of our November special episode. So look for our query show this week, November 16th. That is Thursday, as per usual. Mm-hmm. Writing by reading will follow the Thursday after and then first pages on the 30th. Um, so that is 16th, 23rd, and 30th. Send us your queries and first pages to printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and make sure you head on over to Patreon to catch up on any missed episodes and to catch these new ones as they come out. Mm-hmm. So we're getting started here. And um, we've got a topic at first that fans really love to hear from me on, which is audiobooks. People yes. usually really love what I have to say. <laughs> About audiobooks, but we've got something that I found to be legitimately exciting, and you've tried it. Yes. Yeah, so tell us about what this is. I'm talking about the Audible Romance Package. Mm. Yes. Yes. The, uh, you were just taking a big old sip of gin and tonic <laughs> right there. So real quick on the gin and tonic, um, I asked we – were, we were debating what drink to have tonight per usual – because we're yeah. we're talking about romance books and audiobooks, both of which things require yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, booze for takes. But you've got like some lemon juice in this thing yes. that's like imported from somewhere. You, you like started describing to me the lemon juice, and I felt like I was like starting to smell burnt toast. Like it was, it was, it was like having this. <laughs> Well, I was out of limes. Yeah. Um, because my fiance left uh, the fridge open uh-huh. and for for a day, so we had to throw out a bunch of our yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um. It happens. La- next time it'll be my turn. But the audible I- romance package, though. <laughs> Please. There's okay. Let's get the focused. fancy lemon juice at yeah. Costco yeah. because it's delicious and it will even taste good in a gin and tonic. Uh-huh. But the audible romance package is just as good, if not better, than the fancy lemon juice at Costco. What a segue, folks. <laughs> folks, we're nothing if not pros. We're into the topic. We've moved from banter to topic. So quickly. Seamlessly. Just seamlessly. Yeah. Um, so anyway. The Audible Romance Package. So mm. this is an edition that was debuted this month. Mm. Um, Audible, of course, is Amazon's audiobook kind of downloading program. It's yeah. their digital audiobook listening service. Yeah. Um, the traditional version of that is that you pay them $14.95 a month and you can you get one credit, which you can put to download any audiobook that they have. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so each each audiobook is one credit, so it doesn't really matter. Typically when I do that, I go for the really, really, really long ones because the longer they are, the more expensive they are. But you know what? Amazon has figured it out anyway. Sure. Sure. And so if you want more than one audiobook in that month, you get a discount. Mm-hmm. So what they have done is they have um kind of created this genius program where it's like a com it's like Audible and like the library had a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that should be one of the books on there. I'll be I'm looking sure for is, that yeah. on this program. Yeah. Um, but the Audible Romance Package is in addition to the normal Audible program. So if you have Audible, you can pay uh, $6.95 a month to add the Audible Romance. Or if you don't have Audible at all, you can just do it for like the straight $14.95. And it's the special segment of Audible where you can get as many romance audiobooks as you want. So that 
that I think is really interesting. The reason we're mm-hmm. bringing it up beyond just like breaking down the pricing and things for for you guys is that it feels like a really good example of a specific of an industry addressing the specific needs of a specific readership. Yeah. Right. Yep. So the one book a month thing on audio doesn't really work for a romance reader. Yeah. It's not the way that they're written. It's not the way that they're marketed. It's not the way that they're sold. Um, and this is a really great example, you know, as, as, as much as people might hate Amazon, this is a great example of a retailer actually taking into account reader behavior and also understanding the genre conventions and kind of creating a buying situation that works really, really well for the readers. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is very kind of reminiscent of branded uh, romance imprints, like, you know, like the old Harlequin sure. um, imprints where it's like every book kind of has the same beats and it's the same number of words yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they come out, you know, very, very, very often. And, you know, if you're like buying this one imprint, mm-hmm. you know, then you are getting a specific type of book. Um Audible Romance Package has done that, and it's made it kind of in an unlimited format um, that gets delivered yeah. right to your phone. But it's done it in a way that's kind of broader than just a single imprint. Yeah, and so I think the reason I found this to be particularly notable, and we're well, we're going to get into what is very specifically notable about this. But um, the thing that I like about this impulse and this kind of innovation here, as small as it kind of is, like this is a very simple shift to make, you know, just add a few more things in because that's what these readers want. But it it sort of displays a – it displays that Amazon's like paying attention to yeah. the needs of like um, an industry and a readership and in a kind of a more editorial way than I think we've previously seen, which is, at least to my eye, encouraging. I mean if these are going to be our, you know, big corporate book overlords, let's at least have them – um, you know, pay attention and give us things we want. And they have absolutely given us something um, that we want. Tell us about So you, before we get into this yes. feature, before we tell them what it is. Okay. You tried this. I did. You did the feature. I did. How'd you like it? I have been reading the most fun <laughs> books of my entire life. Yeah? Yes. Okay. It's been so much fun. Yeah. I've been like, I've been happier. Uh-huh. It's been, it's been lovely. I'm sure you have. Yes. Yeah. And do you know what it is? It's not even just access to the books. Well, yeah. Um, it is, it's, it's more, it's a fun browsing experience. Right. So there, there's innovation not only just in how these these books are kind of delivered to the reader. Yeah. Um, but they're they've actually organized how to browse for these books specifically for romance readers. So how I want so? to take you through yeah, all so? of the different ways that this has happened. Um so first of all, I think the most important thing to mention is that you can sort all of the books on this program by steaminess aka <laughs> how much sex is in the book right okay what, i remember so give me the categories again do you have those okay yes from yeah. from uh pg mm-hmm. to x right we have sweet mm-hmm. which is a very common industry term right simmering sweet, oh, sweet is interesting we gotta have mm-hmm. we gotta have carly back on the show she can tell us all about this yeah yep so sweet is a good interesting term yeah. or industry term then mm-hmm. there's simmering and then you get to sizzling uh-huh. So we've gone from like a sauce to like a steak. So like right now, if I'm like on this site, I could go on like, hmm, 
gonna need some sizzle yeah. and like just specifically yeah. indicate that that's the heat level I'm looking for. Exactly, okay. and then it will show you exactly what books are the, that. Wow, okay, yep. that's great. And yeah. then the last two categories are hot damn <laughs> and o o o m g. Mm, man. So it's o dash o dash o m g. I feel like that really escalated. It, I'll be <laughs> 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 like, but so. Um, obviously that's really great. And I, you yes. know, looking through there, um, there are a bunch of like subcategories and tags and yeah, stuff, right? You can also, and, you can also search by character. Yeah. So, um, you can search by a lot of things. We can uh-huh. kind of go what you can search through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But me, so the types some... of characters, um, they kind of, this is, this is kind of great evidence of how much attention Amazon has paid to, um, the genre conventions. Mm-hmm. So types of character like includes both occupation and categorizations. So like sports ball player or, um, you know, like rancher right. or billionaire right. or like, you know, and then categorizations along the lines of moody, like re- moody Midwestern. Man. Actually, that's, that's someone's actually kink, right? reformed yeah. rake. <laughs> And jilted lover are like two of my favorites. And these are all things you can just search by. You, yeah, you can That's just click great. on yeah. it. You can just click on it. Yeah. There's also um, story themes, which are also known in the business as tropes. Uh-huh. Um, so you know things along the lines. I've said on this show that my favorites are enemies to lovers. You can mm-hmm. click on enemies to lovers and find the books with only that trope. So let me ask you this yes. real quick, because there's, I mean, and there's many, many more options. Whether it's character, or I think there's even some like plotline stuff. Um, that you can you can indicate secret babies right exactly there's like all kinds of secret babies secret. god damn it um, that's an but, actual uh, thing it's yeah, an yeah, actual yeah. thing yeah 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 but <laughs> how hard is it like if you're just like someone who's you know back in the pioneer days when you know you wanted to read a romance novel mm-hmm. how hard is it to find the tropes you wanted well you'd have to kind of go by I mean a lot of the tropes that you want um, are based on time period and kind of location yeah so like regency's a forever favorite you know scots are a forever favorite Mm -hmm. like shifters are good Mm -hmm. um so you kind of go by like cover and that sort of like a werewolf okay yeah um but like shifters can be more than wolves yeah um and then you just kind of what you would have to do is you would have to try different romance imprints Mm -hmm. and so like different imprints have different focuses and yeah. different um, levels of steaminess. Yeah. So you will never like get a um, Harlequin intrigue book and and have it be not what is branded as Harlequin. Right. Yeah. So like yeah. so like the basically what it is, it depends. So you kind of just like have to try the yeah. different imprints until you find one you like, and then you can just dive deeper into that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about. Um, the subcategories, which also make shopping in the yeah. Audible Romance package really fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can pick different like categories. You know, I mentioned like, um, you know, I mentioned Regency. I mentioned Scottish, et cetera. I found some really fun categories that I never thought that I would be able to search by. And honestly, now that I can, I'm thrilled. <laughs> so I'm reading a book base, uh, that was recommended to me from The Roaring Twenties. Mm. Yeah. So the Roaring Twenties is one like time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and what's great is that they don't just like say like here's the Roaring Twenties. They also have subcategories. Yeah. And the subcategories are hilarious. So the subcategories of the Roaring Twenties are the bee's knees, 
Wow. Like books that are the bee's knees. Right, right. So we're just going to get it right into the 20s lingo to start for your yes, rolling 20s. Yes, because that it like yeah. feeds into the, the so, feeling of, of yeah. wanting this book. So they've really – it seems like what we're getting at here is they've really done some thorough indexing. Oh, yeah. The, you know, like the metadata here that they, they're they entering oh, yeah. these books in is really, really complex and really, really thorough. Well, we're getting to how thorough. Oh, yeah. No, this this next bit, the reason this has, I mean, this I think is all is very interesting, but it pales in comparison to the feature where. But I need to, to tell you, <laughs> yeah. beyond the bee's knees, yeah, 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 there's yeah, yeah. also Hotsy Totsy Tales. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. What, what? Dare I ask? Hotsy Totsy Tales. Hot-sy-tots? So <laughs> I think it stands to reason that the bee's knees in the Roaring Twenties subcategory, the bee's mm-hmm. knees are a little bit like cuter, a little bit sweeter, a little bit more right, fun. Right, right, right. And the Hotsy Totsy Tales are like the naughty ones. We're just like getting down to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're the naughty ones. Right. Um, there's also a category as galactic. Hmm. And so one of the subcategories in that are alluring aliens they really love alliteration i don't know what that is about romance where they love alliteration um there's a frontier category that has a section called lassoed by love see this is the category for me yeah this is the category for you it's important to me that people be attracted to people with you know lassos and flannel yeah there's also um sports has Mm -hmm. sports is kind of evergreen Mm -hmm. um they have two categories that i really connected with it was Touchdown every time. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and hunks on ice. Yeah, is there like a baseball category where it's There like... was no baseball category. Are you surprised? <laughs> no, I am not surprised because there's absolutely nothing erotic about the game of baseball, <laughs> no matter how you're it's into it. So mad at my dad uh, yeah. and and <laughs> exactly. love. Yeah. Um yeah. So so all of these are great. Like all of these make it really, really, really easy yeah. to find fun books and to kind of like like when you come to the page, you like feel like you're like, ooh, I'm gonna be, I'm about to read a romance book. Yeah. It's not like shopping on the regular sure. Amazon pages. Um, it's very much an experience. And so here's here's where I think the real genius came with the metadata. Uh-huh. So understanding, of course, that romance readers um, or romance books are really trope-driven, yeah. right? Understanding yeah. that, but then also coupling that with reader behavior of reading many, many yeah. books a month. Right. Um, they also understand beyond that just the, the reading behavior of these readers. So most of the people that read romance novels are um, women identifying. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. kind of this idea that they they read a bunch of them. Um, but there's also this idea that they skip to the naughty bits. Yeah. So I think real quick, before we yes. get into this, I want to just make clear what we're talking about here. Um, obviously, well, I'm, we know what we mean by naughty bits, but uh, in terms of the tropes. Yes. Like, and if you listen back, one of our early episodes, I mentioned earlier on the show, but uh, Carly Silver yep. did an episode with us about romance stuff. And one of the things we talked about were kind of um, very standardized, you know, plot conventions, mm-hmm. right? Like these these specific things in the plot have to happen by this point. Um, you know, these, you know, all these various. Um, and it's all just to make sure that the tension is being right, kept up. Right, exactly. You know, there's there's almost, I wouldn't call it quite a science, but almost, you know. And yeah. um, what that does is it lends itself very specifically within this genre to what we're about to describe here. Exactly. And so a lot of readers yeah. will skip to what I'm calling the naughty bits. But basically what that is is kind of the resolution of the sexual tension that's been there or the romantic tension that's been there throughout the entire book. One word for the resolution of the sexual tension is sex. 
It sure is, Eric. It sure is. <laughs> well, so the feature but even the itself, sweet yeah. ones are still yeah, yeah, just kind okay, of like yeah. the kiss or like You're the right. declaration of love or You're something. Right. Um, the feature itself is called "Skip to the Good Part," isn't it? It is. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so yeah. what they did is they kind of understanding this reader behavior and understanding the trope driven nature of these yeah. books. What they did is. Instead of somebody going through and like marking like, whoop, this is where the, you know, this is where the naughty bits come out. Um, Audible editors basically like outline 10 different classic plot points, kind of like different like beats in a in a romance novel. Um, And then they had a program that ran searches for words associated with each of these big plot points, Mm -hmm. you know, like. Things I'm probably not going to say on air because Eric will blush. But, you know, kind of. Excuse me. I will not blush. <laughs> but like, I'm a man of the world, Laura. You know, you are a man of the world. <laughs> um, but so basically they they built this this machine that um, gave that that gave people like, oh, the, you know. A, yeah. a slang word for vagina came up. Mm-hmm. Oh, this must be sex, right? Like we'll be calling it the love machine. The love machine on this show. Yeah. <laughs> so I I think that that is just genius. Yeah. I think it's just genius. Well, so it's obviously you know it's really interesting that we can now feed plots into a computer to the extent that. Um, it, we can skip ahead to the moments that we know the readers want to get to. And, you know, obviously... You for know, certain types of books. Yeah, well, for certain types of books. And, you know, people read romance. You know, some people read to skip ahead. That You know, this is, like we said right. at the beginning, a direct response to, what to reader want. behavior. You know, and I think that's interesting. And I was, like, trying to, you know, obviously romance is a very... Um, in all some really good ways, obviously they can end up like this, but really formulaic. I don't think you'd really be able to do this with the really other formulaic genres, though. Like you couldn't do this with mystery because mystery, you're like trying to figure it out before the the book tells you, right? So you there's no point in just jumping to the reveal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure if this is like a romance only. You know, I was like trying to figure out how to like put it into like any of the genres I work on, and I was like, yeah, we could. You know, you could put it in lit fic and just, like, let me skip ahead to the part where the dude's, like, sad in the rain or something. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, get me past all these, like, normal points. One like, thing you could do is for something, like, in nonfiction, um, you could fast forward to, like, the actual argument of the book. Yeah. That would be great. Oh, well, so, no, yeah. And on, on nonfiction, I would absolutely, like, for, like, science books, I would have this program, like, skip through any of the bits where, like, suddenly the scientist has decided to, like, write in first-person narration about how beautiful the leaves are around them. <laughs> like, that happens a lot in science stuff where, like, people will very suddenly decide to be poets. The leaves of, like, are beautiful, Yeah, Eric. so it's like, I don't know, let's just skip past this and get to the part that's interesting to the story of evolution that you're trying to tell me or whatever it is. Um, but there's lots of things I'd love to skip through. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, but it's, it, it does feel like a romance thing. But I think the point, though... Is that maybe we're reaching a stage where with some of this, you know, digital technologies, whether it's um, audible or maybe, you know, we'll see something like this for an e-reader. The nature of browsing Um, is changing. The nature of browsing is changing. And we're also, you know, responding a little bit more specifically to genres with regard to reader experience. And I think that that could – at first it sounds really great, Mm -hmm. right? It's been great so far. Well, yeah. Um, And I think that – I'm going to be really interested to see if they're able to adapt this beyond just romance because once you do, 
I wonder if like way down the line it's going to end up affecting the way people write. Mm. If that makes sense. Well, like, well, the the genre and trope conventions already affect the way people write romance. Yeah, like it does like like that kind of you know like for instance if I were writing a you know a novel knowing that the way it was going to be received. Uh, you know, or w- one major way people were going to interact with it was going to involve certain skipping or certain beats, you know. Like, I don't know, if reading changes, writing probably changes in yeah. some way. And I don't know, it's interesting to think about. But um, it's a really cool technology for now that we haven't really um, seen all the implications for other than that it makes life really easy for people who love romance novels. You it know? makes it real fun. <laughs> I'm going to, like, after this, I'm going to go read my Hotsy Totsy book. Hotsy Totsy. Yeah. Man. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to go hide out in the mountains away from all you hotsy totsy. I am honestly pagans. so angry that Amazon <laughs> yeah. did this first. Yeah. No, I, I, know. I Well, of course they do. I mean, yeah, this is the of thing. Course they this did. is the, this is the thing with them. I mean, we and we give them a lot of flack on this show and they deserve all of it. But um you know, when they're flinging this kind of, you know, money around, they are going to invent, you know, things that really work yeah. like this and it's going to be a lot of good with a lot with a lot of the bad and um, I think we should celebrate when things like this happen. And um, I don't know. It with, seems some, like- with some hotsy totsy books and a gin and tonic <laughs> with lemon in it that's Just, imported from Costco. Yeah, I'm going to get in there and like sort through all kinds of strange things that have to do with like. There's an entire <laughs> category for Amish romance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See this? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so the next thing we're going to deal with um, is I guess it, this kind of harkens back to something we've discussed um, in a prior episode too, but I want to talk about endorsements, mm. and I want to talk about um, how endorsements of books. When we're talking about like blurbs on the back, right, or like public campaigning by people, you know, you know, like tweet, you know, having someone who's notable in the literary world or otherwise, you know, tweeting about your book or any any sort of, you know, like we say, endorsement, you know, whether it's on the cover or not, of a project, and how you know, you and I were talking about it today, and especially you, you wanted to bring this up. You feel that that process and the way we're thinking about, you know, who should blurb books and why, you think that's changed a little bit. Or at least the way people are having those conversations in-house have changed. Yeah. I I had an experience not too long ago where I um, was working very closely pre-production on on a book that was blurbed by Donna Brazil, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 chair of the DNC. Mm-hmm. And um once kind of the 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 scandal, I guess you could say, with the first fe- feeding Hillary Clinton the the debate questions and then also Well, Dia, yeah, yeah. So Brazil wrote a book. Yeah. Right now and it's getting a lot of um obviously a lot of attention because it's got some revelations about various political things, but Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter. This yeah. is a picture book right. about like <laughs> it was a picture book that she that she endorsed. Um, and it yeah. it it like caused a lot of really interesting questions that uh-huh. was being raised. It was like, what does it mean yeah. that somebody that is this kind of loved on one side, hated on the other, that sort of thing um, is is kind of has their name stamped on this book? Yeah. And one thing, you know, we touched on in our previous endorsement um, episode is that endorsements are usually either neutral or good. Yeah. And one thing that I'm seeing is given everybody's, you know, kind of political visibility Mm -hmm. and given kind of how fast 
scandal travels yeah. in this day and age, yeah. um, especially with publishing, is that there is now such a thing as a bad endorsement. I would say so. I mean, I think in this obviously, you know, with your, you know, speaking, obviously we're not going to get into Donna Brazil, but like she is a political figure and all political figures have people who like them and dislike them. And to have endorsements by those figures, um, you know, you would think always that having anyone who kind of exists in the political public conscience um, would affect the way someone would view a book that's been blurred by them on the front cover or the back cover. Um, but honestly, I'm not so sure that's been the case up until now, really. I mean, I guess, um, you know, I was, you know, I was wandering through a bookstore the other day, a used bookstore. Um, and I was kind of in their, you know, history politics section. And I kind of found myself doing something that I hadn't really done in a, you know, in a really long time, especially with like older books. You know, I'm seeing like all the politics books from like 2012 or like 2000, you know, like mid 2000s, you know, kind of later, because that's kind of the stuff they had at this, you know, small used bookstore, right? And like, I was judging every single book by who had endorsed it. Mm. Because all of a sudden in this like hyper-political age that we live in, I feel like I have an extremely polarized opinion about nearly every like public intellectual there is. And so suddenly I'm picking up books and mm, I don't like that person. Definitely setting that down. Yeah. You know, you know you, who you agree with now. And I, Exactly. And I, I think that that is a brand. I mean, obviously, we've you know, people have always known, well, who, who I agree with and who I don't. But um, there's a certain it's like it's like in brighter color now. And, like, yeah. I'm looking at these things and I'm looking at, like, oh, well, these publications reviewed it and they said this about it. And then, like, in my head, I'm running the mental calculus saying, oh, well, I know what that outlet thinks about this and this and this. So I'm sure that that's what's in this book. Or, you know, I know that this person – like, suddenly you're piecing together the entire story of the book in your head, rightly or wrongly. Based on who Based on it. the endorsements, based on the reviews and based on the outlet coverage, all, ba all based on what's on the cover – and I'm not so sure that's been done nearly as much until now because I think that everyone has, I don't know, obviously politics are on people's minds a lot more in 2016 and 2017. But um, it certainly changes like who you've got on your book. Like I think there were a lot of figures um, that used to be considered neutral, right? Like you could put, yeah. for instance, an ex-president. Or like an ex, you know, cabinet member or someone like Henry Kissinger blurbs books all the time, mm. you know, and that's someone I, you know, I'm not going to read any book that Henry Kissinger thinks is good. Sorry. <laughs> like, and it's, um, you know, like, but that's like a new thing. And I think that these are, um, you know, these are things that, you know, to your point, like the negative endorsement, like. It's new. It yeah. feels new to me. I, yeah. I had this moment where I was like, oh, yeah. wait. And endorsement is actually one that we shouldn't use. And it's not just because, like, it's dumb and from your Uncle Bob. Right. Um, Might alienate a giant swath of readers. Yeah. But yeah. One thing that's become really, really clear is that the more you can show people what you have to say, mm -hmm. the more your opinions matter for something like this. Mm -hmm. So before, you know, it was just a name somebody recognized. It was like, <clears> oh, <throat> I vaguely know who that person is. Yeah. Great. But now if it's somebody like even an author yeah. who is on Twitter all the time, is yeah. kind of writing op-eds all the time, is That's publishing the them, is publishing them all over the place, like they're they don't have more opinions necessarily. It's just that their opinions see you see them. So it feels like, you know, what they're endorsing, which 
to reiterate, most of the time when people are endorsing books, they like read the blurb and then they like skim through it or maybe even not at all. And they're like, yeah, write this. This is what it – so I totally agree with that. And this is what it feels like to me, honestly, like going through – and like you're obviously – the book you mentioned at the start was not a political book but maybe was going to be blurbed by someone yeah, who – Yeah, it was a was children's the, book. Right, exactly. <laughs> but like, you know, you know, in the you know in the books that I work in, in the ones that I often read, which are expressly historical or political or trying to take a, you know, pulse of a current moment, um, looking at the endorsements on any given book, it almost reads – it almost reads like I'm staring at Twitter. Because yeah. you go on the back of the you go on the back of the book and you see what four four quick little opinions from four different people, right? You see some statements from a few different media outlets. You see like a little bit of copy from the author, and it's like honestly, it reads exactly like a newsfeed. Our endorsements, <laughs> OG Twitter. Yeah. What? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, yeah. in a way, like with regard to a certain thing, like, and I don't know. It's it's almost like you know like. Every you know, at least in the corner of the internet that I'm often a part of, um, anytime the New York Times op-ed page posts anything, like it, it's a time to like saddle up and roast the hell out of that thing, right? <laughs> and and that's what it feels like to pick up literally any <laughs> any political book that ever comes out. It's like, oh man, this person, this person, this person again. And I think that like I think that that's new because I know that I didn't used to be like that. And I know that lots of others kind of feel the same way, where they just feel like hyper aware of every opinion of every person alive. And I think it's really gonna like. And I'm not sure publishers have caught up with this yet, because like you see their news feeds, and they're like happily retweeting, you know, quotes and things from people who, you know, you could very safely say are quote unquote problematic, you know, in the you know in the modern age and in modern um, you know perception. And it's like that stuff is moving so fast and it's so hyper aware. That I think to your point that the conversation that you you had in the in the press that you work for, it's it's going to come into much more the forefront. Do you think that negative endorsements are here to stay? Like the concept of an endorsement <clears throat> negatively affecting the sales of a book. Well, so I think that's tricky. I, I do, but the question is to is to what extent? Because I think that, for instance, um, you know, like I'm not big on the big main line of. Um, American politics, right? Like Republican and Democrat, or like you know, center left and center right. You know, most conservative readerships aren't going to buy books that have been you know blurbed by you know a Clinton or someone from you know, mm-hmm. like they're not you know they're not going to be interested in that kind of thing anyway. And that's why we have things like conservative imprints. You know, there's already that division that's already kind of taking place. Right. But you know, there's all these other little subdivides now. You know, like there are factions of, you know, the right that really hate each other. There are factions of the left now that really hate each other. This woman writes and- hotsy totsy books when she's trying to blurb <laughs> a bee's knees. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're all so factionalized right now. And I, th- I think, I mean, it would, I think the way it would end up affecting books in terms of sales and would actually make it onto like an editorial table at like a big five house or something would be if, there was like serious major blowback from a demographic they cared about. And I, I think we're still a little bit of a ways away mm. from that. Um, because I think we're headed in that direction though. Because I think that, um, you know, we've seen this kind of calculus run before. Like, for instance, with, like with the Milo book, Simon and Schuster knew that none of you were going to go buy that. You know, like that was not, you guys were not a part of their initial sales projection. Like they know you're going to be mad at it, even though it ended up in a way they didn't foresee. But like, there are these like negative connotations that publishers do take into account when they decide to publish certain things. The question is, 
Is it going to come from, you know, endorsements and our figures? Is every public intellectual or public writer or thinker, whoever it is, going to become someone that becomes a deal breaker for everyone? And I guess my to distill my point from earlier, my list of deal breakers has exponentially increased, mm. you know? So I don't know. I mean, it's it's tricky, but I, I think it might happen. I mean, I think you're going to have to see a lot more thought into who gets put on your books. Well, what will be interesting is that agents are actually brought into the endorsement conversation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than any other type of conversation because we have completely separate relationships yep. than authors do and specific editors at specific houses and, because we're yeah. house agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think, like, I'm I'm interested of, like, what will be the day when I pull out the, hey, maybe we shouldn't use this endorsement. Well, that's the other reason that agents get brought in, right? Yeah. It's because you're the one who's thinking about how the author is being positioned. You're yeah. the author or you're the person who's thinking about how the author is being viewed in the public. And, you know, the blurbers, you know, the four, the four people on the back of the book who – are claiming kinship with your author. I mean, that matters if you're trying to steer, you know, the, your client in a certain direction in their career. Um, I think it matters. So I don't know. And I guess in like a, this, you know, kind of factional, very, um, you know, sectioned off world we live in, I, I think that it could affect. I think yeah. it could affect. The we'll books. report back as yeah. as this kind of happens. Um, speaking of being an agent. Yes, as we as we often are. What a transition! I feel like we could do that for literally every segment. Speaking of being an agent, books, folks, books, folks. <laughs> um, we're we're kind of at the end of 2017, yeah. Um, and we we kind of talk about the the world as we see it as agents that kind of exist in this wonky space uh-huh. and um, in publishing kind of not for a specific house, but not kind of writing your own stuff and kind of all over the yeah. place and with an eye to trends and and all of that. Um, it's late enough in the year that I thought or we thought that it would be a good time to kind of look at where the industry is in terms of big ass money deals. Right. So <laughs> this was kind of one of our I mean we sort of for the process for this what we wanted to look at here was deals that are classified on publishers marketplace um which is basically like the main clearinghouse for publishing news, you know, for anyone in the industry. Um deals that were listed as quote unquote major which are $500,000 and up. Right, which means 500k and up. And I, I, one of the things we saw, I think, here is that we actually probably need a bigger classification than that because there are – like a 500k book deal is a lot different than like the book deal James Comey got. Yeah. Which was like eight figures. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference. But the point is they all get lumped into this highest category of just big-ass book deals and – in 2017 so far, yeah. there have been 116 titles that have been reported onto Publishers Marketplace as being as of this, hu- this sold amount. for $500,000 and more. And so I wanted to – I mean the reason I think this is worth looking at to me is because you can almost use it as a – you know like a measure of where the winds are blowing. You mm-hmm. know, like because when a publisher, especially with some of the categories we're gonna get to, like debut fiction, for instance, unproven talent, people writers people haven't heard of, you know, non-brand names. Um, a willingness on an editor or a publisher's part to spend this kind of money 
suggests that they believe that a market is moving in a certain place. Yep. It makes them, you know, as we've talked about a billion times on this show, publishers are risk averse. You know, especially the ones making the kind of deal or the ones with the kind of money to make a 500k book deal. Um, you know, they're not trying to take giant, you know, avant-garde risks. They're trying to um, find something that's going to sell. And so with some of these things, you know, what that's often meant is that um, we've gotten, you know, celebrity books and novels from, you know, established white men. Exactly. Right? Like that's what that has always meant. That's up the until impression now. that right. we've had. Yeah. And I think we're kind of reaching a point looking through this list. I was so surprised that maybe some of this is changing. You know, like we have some, you know, we have some new features. I don't know. I was looking through and I mean, I guess some of the patterns that I thought um, were kind of st- were kind of striking. There's a big present amongst the 116 deals of the last year, mm-hmm. I guess 11 months technically. Right. But um, over the last year that kind of fit this bill. Um, you know, a lot of them are sort of that, you know, lifestyle or advice or like how to, right? You know, you get a lot of, yep. um, I don't know, like the big one was like the Tom Brady, you know, stupid, you know, TV 12, here's how to live forever and, you know, be I've me. Never but heard of this. You've book never in heard my of that. It's like life. it was number one for a while. I try to avoid Tom Brady. Well, so do I, but he's unavoidable at times. Mm. Shea Serrano beat him out one day. Oh, and it was like a big oh deal. in the New York Times in, yeah, bestseller the New York list. Times bestseller yes. list. But anyway, that book, that is an example of the sort of book that is like in the lifestyle section of it's like don't eat night sh- right. don't eat tomatoes and eggplant because <laughs> they're in the nightshade family and the the related plants will kill you. Here's, yeah, that sort of thing. Here's your seven figure check, sir. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, like it's that kind of thing or like big like the, or like I mentioned earlier, the James Comey memoir. You know, that doesn't even have a title or a direction or anything. Um, that got a giant sum of money. You know, there's all kinds. Of, you know, there's all kinds of things like that. So that was a big category. The other one that I think is always interesting um, because it feels, you know, it feels risk averse at first because you're paying for a lot of books and thus the cost per book is lower. But series, mm-hmm. you saw a lot of that, right? Especially in young adult, yep. and especially, and these are obviously not mutually exclusive, but in fantasy. Yep. So there's a ton of series. Here. Yeah. Middle grade, actually. Middle yeah. grade and, and chapter books. I did not know that people huge. paid that much for middle grade oh, novels. Oh, do you is know how many a, Diary of a Wimpy Kid books there are? I guess that's a, an omission of mine. I didn't realize that that's what we were. I mean, I guess now I can see why people would pay for that. But like for a, a – yeah, wow. Like there are some – I was surprised by some of the children's and middle grade prices on oh, yeah. here. Oh, yeah. So let's I, – I kind of – I want to I want to bring us pull back out a little bit. Yeah. Um out of 116 titles. Um I found the numbers just the spread between fiction nonfiction and kids mm-hmm. to be really really interesting. Mm-hmm. So you will hear Eric and I talk on this podcast about how like most of the money for publishing is in nonfiction. Yeah. With fiction, you know, people you know, you never know what's going to hit with fiction. Yeah. But with nonfiction, you can be like, oh, this person's a celebrity, as Eric was talking about. This person is an expert. Or is someone an expert. with a platform. Exactly. It's a lot more defined than nonfiction. And so I was assuming, because as a fully fiction agent, I was like, oh, well, the the nonfiction guys make the most money. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out, very wrong. So out of 116 deals, there were 34 nonfiction deals. Right. There were 48 fiction deals and then 17 kids' books. Yeah. That includes, like, picture book all the way through YA. Well, so this is what I think about that because um, I do think that that wisdom – honestly, I think that wisdom still holds. I do think that nonfiction authors get mm. – um, 
I think they get paid more. I think publishers are willing to take a higher chance on nonfiction authors. I think they know where they're going to sell them. Readerships are easier to define. All those things are still true. But we're talking about the very highest category. We're talking yeah. about what publishers are viewing as home runs here, right? I would guess, and obviously we haven't dug into it, but if you went into like the slightly lower, lower, like these are still incredibly high numbers, but like the 100K advance range, the, 90, the 90K advance range, you know, sort of that mid-range, just like big book, like amount that isn't just an absolute blockbuster, that's going to be filled with nonfiction. Whereas maybe like with fiction, you either love it or you don't at that level. Like if you're willing to pay... Um, because it's it's so much more of a guessing game that if you're going to pay, you know, like I think one thing we noticed in this list is a lot of these fiction titles were at auction, mm-hmm. right? And so it's, um, you know, fiction has, I think, a higher probability of shooting the moon a lot of the time, whereas it doesn't really fill out some of those middle tiers of pricing in terms of advances. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just, just from our conversations off yeah. air, yeah. the typical, like, considered good debut fiction advance mm-hmm. is like insulting yeah. for yeah. a nonfiction debut advance. Yeah. I mean, it, that is incredibly dependent on subject and house and all these things. Right. But like, in general. Yeah. No, the, the advances for nonfiction are typically higher because um, publishers have a sense of how much they can sell. Yeah. Um, but I guess the reason that I wanted to do this topic, the, re- the thing that really stuck out to me um, was what I – um, classified as like true debut fiction. Mm-hmm. All right, and I guess I should even add like true debut, like literary fiction. Like there are some thrillers in here. Obviously, there's a ton of fiction on here from prior bestsellers. You know, there's a lot of name brands on here who are mm-hmm. selling their fourth or fifth book, you know, for a big chunk of money or whatever. But there was a category that always gets me really excited. And it's like the debut author that no one's ever heard of, mm-hmm. you know, that's writing a novel for the first time without much of a platform and is still getting the giant check right now for their first yep. book. And because to me that's amongst all these categories that's the riskiest proposition for a publisher. Mm-hmm. And it also is the most indicative of we think this is where we're headed. We think this is what's going to sell. And I was looking at kind of like, you know, what what the big books are going to be like next year, like the ones that, you know, we haven't heard anything about but they, you know, their deals got posted this year and they're all by women. It's all, it's all. I mean, at least the, of the ten that I marked down, the debuts, like these, like true debut literary. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're like I think like nine out of the ten were female authors, and all of them were about like the stories themselves were like about women that, and about like you know fa- yeah. I don't know. It just to me, it signals. Um, obviously, you know, there's kind of that axiom that like. You know, women are the ones who read the books, right? Like, you know, yeah. I've, you know, all of I think who is it? Marlon James, who said that all of publishing is kind of geared toward white women. Well, I mean, it's kind of true. I mean, it's true. <laughs> I, right? I mean, that's the, yeah. it is true. But I think that he was the one who kind of yeah. Gave that if quote, you look but, at reader demographics, yeah, right? Um, the most of the books that are consumed in publishing are read by women specifically and the largest demographic of women who read books are middle-aged white women mm-hmm. like college educated middle-aged white women yeah, but i just like i look at this list and you know we've got a book for instance about you know two sisters who get lost in kimchaka we've got you know an immigrant story we've got um you know a, a quote unquote a novel of manners we've got you know a book about a you know a preacher's daughter you know and it's like it's experiences that I'm not so sure were 
written about. They, like these are not the. They deal. weren't valued at this a million dollars. This yeah. isn't the man. You know, this isn't the you know the Brooklyn dude. You know, writing the moody novel about being the you know professor and trying to get with a student. You know what I mean? <laughs> like all the tropes that we associate with just the most obnoxious establishment fiction, it's missing here. I really feel that it is, and. I don't know. It kind of got me excited because I'm looking at these and I'm looking at the, you know, the people, you know, the colleagues of ours that I see who are acquiring these books. And, you know, we spend so much time talking about track records and how publishing loves to operate on precedent. And, you know, it loves to look at, hey, this worked in the past. We want to do that again. And it's like if these books succeed, you know, this feels like how the door opens for, you know, greater representation, not only in, um, you know, authorship, but also in editorship. Like, it's, I don't think it's a mistake that all the editors for these books are women, too, you know. And it's, I don't know, like, to me, it felt like encouraging that the public, you know, the big major publishers, these are the, these are the people who we're trying to throw the money behind right now. What's really heartening to me is that the bulk of the people that are being betted on essentially as a not sure thing Mm -hmm. are women. Whereas if you kind of look beyond the debut fiction deals and you're looking specifically in fiction um, and then you look at the big deals from the already has been successful repeat author, the bulk of those are men. Yeah. And so what that kind of shows to me is that, you know, the tables are turning a little bit. So previously, men... Something new is happening. Exactly. Like yeah. previously, um, male fiction authors would be kind of considered to a, a, a surer bet, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Um, whereas women kind of had to have multiple books and kind of build up their readership and prove yeah. that they're worthy to be frontless. Well, that's the thing with my point and about... It's, yeah. switching about that having no platform right like that's what i think is so is so worth watching with that category i was kind of describing like the you know the undiscovered talent you know the undiscovered writer um that used to yeah you're like exactly like you're saying like that kind of no platform person where a publisher said we know you don't have anything yet but we're going to build you out and invest in you um those opportunities are broadening a little bit and i think that that's i don't know that gets me excited One thing that I am also really excited about, kind of switching tacks a little bit, is looking at the children's list. Um, Eric mentioned before kind of the preponderance of of series Mm -hmm. here, you know, Mm -hmm. and that and series, especially when it comes to middle grade. You know, you've got the dork diaries and the diary of a wimpy kid and, you know, kind of those really, really big, you know, dozens of books projects. Um, And. You know, everything, everything for picture book all the way to middle grade is looking pretty much what I expected mm-hmm. here. You mm-hmm. know, kind of a mostly repeat, um, mostly series, kind of mostly previous New York Times bestselling authors. But why stop? I found something really interesting with What's young that? adult. Um, almost all of the young adult books that are listed on here um, – particularly not necessarily all debut but many many of them are debut i'd say probably 60 percent, 70 percent are debut um they're all books that are that would be considered diverse books yeah so they all have kind of either main characters or settings that are not um kind of what has been been the norm recently so 
Um, you know, we've got a Latin American inspired kingdom. We have, you know, a historical young adult novel set in Brooklyn in 1998 about two teenage boys who turn their murdered friend into a rap star. You know, we, <laughs> which I'm so excited about, actually. Yeah. That's a, that's Tiffany Jackson's book, and I've, I've been hearing yeah. all about it. Yeah. You know, we have um, – this is actually from a New York Times bestselling author um, – but Guardians of the Dawn, which is pitched as an East Asian-inspired fantasy series. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you have kind of this this focus on, like, worlds and viewpoints that yeah. hadn't really come before. And, right. you know, like, we have previously pointed to, you know, Angie Thomas and The Hate You Give as being number one on the New York Times bestseller list for 30, 40 weeks um, as kind of a, a sea change. But this actually proves that the money... The money is, follows the, the success. The money follows the success. Yeah. And it's not just one book. Right. You know, it's actually showing that publishing is it's looking a year towards of the changing biggest books. it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's really key. Which is, yeah, which is which is really, you know, it's really heartening. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be do done um, in how acquisitions are done and, and, you know, what is acquired and who is doing the acquisitions. Mm -hmm. um, kind of a lot of other things that we talk about all the time on here. But in, in terms of kind of looking at this trash fire that is this year, 2017. <laughs> this is a good part. This is, I think, some really interesting stuff. It's it is. It's very heartening. Yeah. yeah. And these trends, these larger, like, publishers betting on new people or existing people or just kind of any book and any project um, is something that, that speaks a lot to the state of the union, as it were. Yeah. Um, so we are going to be keeping track as the year finishes and kind of into next year. Um, and we'll be doing some some fun comparisons and some fun uh, reporting on that. So definitely stay tuned there. So it's time for a little – it's time to bring a segment back. <laughs> the, okay. the best named segment this show has ever seen, I think, which is um, the – I'm trying to make sure I get it right because the title, despite it being perfect and unassailable in every way, is a little bit tricky to remember – um, the, what, fiction writer under FBI investigation of the week? It's actually Folks. fiction author under investigation <laughs> by the FBI, <laughs> comma, of the week. I'm glad that I um, I'm glad that I added in a few extra prepositional phrases in a comma. That's, yep. that's key. Good. To, to repeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fiction please. author under investigation by the FBI of the week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Thank you, Laura. Um, but so today um, we are looking at um, another figure, titan of Dear American old literature. Dear old dad. <laughs> um, Ernest Hemingway is our guy today. And I want to bring him up. We'll see why we get at him here in a minute. But um, Ernest Hemingway mm -hmm. was someone who obviously did a ton of writing throughout the middle of the 20th century. Some of it was good. Uh, some, some of it wasn't. <laughs> but he um, – was like many authors of the period, whether it was what James Baldwin was someone who I think we've talked about before. Uh, Raymond Ray Bradbury was someone we've talked about before. Ayn Rand. Ayn, <laughs> Ayn Rand. She was the narc, though. Um, Dorothy Parker was someone we've done. But so Hemingway, like many of the rest of these folks, was thought to be a communist. That's usually how this ended up happening. Um, he had very um, well-documented pro-Cuba sympathies is why he got um, – why he thought he was under investigation. And that thinking is actually what I think is really interesting here as like a little bit of historical aside. So late in his life, um, he had this friend, and I found this I found this New York Times op-ed. Um, shout out to them. I just <laughs> talked about how I hate them earlier. But um, here was, I thought, quite an interesting little letter 
um, from a man named A.E. Hotchner, who was, I guess, one of his hunting buddies. And Hemingway uh, very famously committed suicide at the end of his life. You know, he shot himself. Um, but there's this trip that this man documents for the end. They go on one last hunting trip. And, um, you know, the cause of Hemingway's death has been long. You know, I mean, it's just kind of been chalked up to depression and, you know, kind of being past his prime and just kind of general, um, you know, mental, un- being mentally unwell. Um, but this is kind of a different story. And here we get this kind of final anecdote of his life in which they go on this hunting trip and Hemingway suddenly doesn't want to stop at any of the bars they used to go to. And he doesn't want to hunt at the same times because he's just deathly worried that he, they're being tracked and followed by the, by FBI. the FBI. And he's incredibly, yeah, he's just incredibly nervous. He's being painted here as, in, you know, skittish and all these things distracted, you know, doesn't want to do any of the things, doesn't want to talk about anything, doesn't, you know, can't write. You know, he's got that kind of complaint and um, ends up. You know, I mean, he's just convinced that these FBI agents are just on him and they're looking at him and they're tapping all his phones. And whenever they go to a hotel, his phone's being tapped there and all these things. Um, And we got to, you know, we get to the end of his life. And obviously, you know, it ends in the manner that we just described. So I want to I want to read like just a slight little bit from from the end of this of this op ed. And I will link out to it. It's, I think, quite interesting and worth seeing. Um, But here Hoshner writes of Hemingway. This man who had stood his ground against charging water buffaloes, who had flown missions over Germany, who had refused to accept the prevailing style of writing, but enduring rejection and poverty had insisted on writing in his own unique way. This man, my deepest friend, was afraid. Afraid that the FBI was after him, that his body was disintegrating, that his friends had turned on him, that living was no longer an option. Decades later, in response to a Freedom of Information petition, The FBI released its Hemingway file. It revealed that beginning in the 1940s, J. Edgar Hoover had placed Ernest under surveillance because he was suspicious of Ernest's activities in Cuba. Over the following years, agents filed reports on him and tapped his phones. The surveillance continued all through his confinement at St. Mary's Hospital. It is likely that the phone outside his room was tapped after all. And so, I don't know, I mean, I just found it, like, somewhat haunting and somewhat interesting that we've got just one more guy who felt that, you know, Hoover was was after him. And, you know, it's kind of a running thread, I think, through so much of, you know, that era is it just felt like, you know, the FBI was, you know, constantly accusing everyone of being a communist. They thought, um, you know, they just had this interest in art, you know, and they had um, especially, um, you know, you know, uh, black authors, obviously Hemingway is not one, but like guys like Langston Hughes or, you know, James Baldwin, they were, you know, sc- um, lengthy files, you know, they had on these men um, because, um, you know, they were worried about them being agitators or, you know, disturbing the peace or things like that. The implication here yeah. is that the FBI caused the death of Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> right? I mean, I think like, that is, okay, so that I think is the, that is like the stretch of an implication from this. I think obviously it mixes a bunch of factors um, but contributed. Certain, I mean, according if you asked Ernest, that seems to be what he would say. But um, who knows? But it definitely wasn't the six-toed cats. <laughs> it was not the six-toed cats. Good. Such that we know. Did he have six-toed cats? <laughs> yes. So his uh, yeah, his cats. like compound in in Florida is like famous because he would like collect these these cats. So like there are there's like a certain. Um, defect in some cats where they get like extra little like beans like extra little toes um 
And, you know, they're they're weird, to yeah. be honest, yeah. like to look at them. They're kind of weird, but they're like kind of cute. So he like had this thing for like these six toed cats. Um, and so now when you go to the museum in Florida, that is his home. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this entire like like this this colony of yeah. these six toed cats. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Fun fact. That has nothing to do with the FBI. No, maybe it does. You never know. I never, Um, yeah, But so um, to wrap the show up today, um, we usually, obviously, we usually do a right tip. Um, But I think there might be something fun about doing a prompt this time. It is NaNoWriMo. It is is NaNoWriMo. Maybe you're looking for some more inspiration. Maybe you're looking for, I I don't know, anything. Maybe you're not doing it, just looking for a prompt you can do. Um, but we thought we'd kind of get into it, especially as we get ready to try to, you know, steer the course a little bit next month um, in December. Um, hashtag December. Ha- hashtag December. Hashtag blessed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we wanted to do a prompt at the end of this one. And one thing I noticed, like looking through some of this FBI and author stuff, is that they're sort of developed this um, – this almost this branch of literary criticism that these FBI agents would slip into. You know, they'd be talking about, you know, James Baldwin, and of course they'd be trying to determine, you know, in his work, you know, if, for instance, if Baldwin was a homosexual, if, um, you know, any of these things, right, they're constantly reading these things and trying to figure out who this man is, right? There's also if if they can censor this because if it's obscene, so right. they have to decide if it is art has artistic merit or not. Right, right, right. But, yeah, so, like, the point here is that, you know, the FBI actually engaged quite a bit in what would almost be considered like academic literary criticism yes. because they had to because they were trying to figure this out. And so often you get these passages from these files that read almost admiringly, right, of the people that are saying, hey, maybe, you know, I could actually see that, you know, people should be teaching this, you know, this Baldwin essay, you know, and stuff like that. And I found it really interesting. And so this is the prompt for today. Imagine that you are surveying yourself. You, you're an author who's now under investigation by the FBI. Mm. They're building a file on you, and they are writing about your work and about your, you know, your life. What are they learning from your work, and what would appear in that file you know, based on what are they guessing about you? What are they guessing about um, the things you like to write about? And what are they thinking about your life as they read it and look at it? That is <laughs> super fun. And I want you to write this. Can you oh, write yeah, this no, this I week? mean, mine will be deranged. But um, <laughs> but I figure, you know, it's like I, I view it as kind of an interesting thing. Like how, you know, it's sort of a how are, you know, do we view ourselves? How, you know, as writers and as themes, like what, um, you know, what can be learned from our writing? Maybe it's a way to engage with it in a way you haven't. But if you send those to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, uh, we will post. We'll post the best ones um, online and we will um, – Maybe you'll win something fun like books. Yeah, hopefully we'll have some fun with it. Um, But send it it our way, huh? Thank you so much for joining us on this, the 51st episode of Print Run. Remember, this Thursday, the query episode goes live. Send us your queries and first pages at printrunpodcast at gmail.com along with the little stories from your writing prompt. And we will see you for a regular episode next week. 